Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, last week we celebrated Trinity Sunday. Some of you might remember that. The last of the special feast days for a good long time. For Trinity last Sunday, Deacon Bob served us up with an excellent sermon on the Old Testament cameo appearances, I want to say, of the three members of the Holy Trinity for Trinity Sunday. They weren't as explicit members of the Trinity showing up there in the Old Testament. They weren't as close up and personal as, say, we see at Jesus' own baptism in the New Testament. And that's where the Father very clearly speaks from heaven. He speaks concerning his love for his son who's standing in the baptismal waters, and then the Holy Spirit descending in the form of a dove comes down, rests, and remains upon Jesus the Son to complete that nice picture of the Holy Trinity. So you don't find that kind of clear-cut appearance of our triune God in the Old Testament, hence the Christian expression, maybe some of you heard it, The new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. So there's more that you get out of the new, new revelation. Or as St. Paul says, the mystery revealed to us now in our generation. We read as well last week at the very end of the gospel reading, Matthew's gospel, another very clear new testimony, if you will of God's triune nature. As I said, it's in the very last chapter of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, and it's what we call the Great Commission. Now, the Great Commission is definitely one worth reading again and again on any Sunday or in any season of the church, really, for this spiritual snippet, the Great Commission, also contains the church's marching orders, the church militant on earth. These are our marching orders, so to speak, down through the centuries until our Lord Jesus comes back in glory. So we get that from this great commission. Jesus approached them and told them, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, as you go, disciple people in all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And remember, I am with you each and every day until the end of the age. What a nice promise that is from the Son, right? The Son who shares the same name, singular name, as the Father and the Spirit. And so today, uh, we we have our baptismal candle out here because we're celebrating one of our preschoolers got baptized, Logan. So... That was wonderful. And we also sang, holy, 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 um, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. So for some churches who are struggling to formulate a mission statement or a vision statement for the church, in the Great Commission there, there's a ripe missionary statement just waiting to be plucked for some church. Um, for some churches, it's just too irresistible, and then you just make the Great Commission their vision statement for the church. Not bad. One more side note, by the way, though, on the translation that I chose to read to you on the, in the Great Commission, just in case we do want to look more closely 
at the Great Commission for something official representing our church, I recommend the ISV, International Standard Version. Now, I had never even heard of that uh, version of the Bible. I don't know if you have either, the ISV. But out of 62 translations, including the ESV here, nobody got it right with the main verb in the Great Commission, which is the mandate to make disciples. Um, and that's how that should be translated. Make disciples or disciple people, and that's okay too, uh, which the ISV uses. Because it's the main verb. And now besides that main verb, there are three other participles that dangle from that main verb. So I'm getting a little grammatical on you, but it's just the words in English that end in ing. So really, it shouldn't be go into all the world, because go is, is supposed to be a participle. It's as you go, or as you are going. And that kind of changes it. As you are going, um, make disciples. Baptizing them, that's another participle. And teaching them. So those are like the helper words. But the main one is make disciples. So why is this important? Why am I getting all grammatical on you here? Well, it's because it's important. It's because it's easy for a lot of churches, missionary organizations, or some just innocent readers of the Bible. It's easy to get the mistaken idea that your church or just you, the well-meaning Christian, must go in order to be obedient to the Great Commission. So when you put that as an imperative like go, which is an incorrect translation, you're giving people the wrong idea. Uh, with the poorer translations, they change um, the word verb go to make it look like a main verb and a command or a imperative verb instead of as you are going about your life, okay? That's what we want to see it as. As you are fulfilling your vocation as husband, wife, mother, father. As you're doing that, um, make disciples as the Lord opens those doors. So that's how the verse should be rendered. But when you put the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable, um, then you get this idea that I must go somewhere, overseas mission. I must go to an inner city mission or an Indian reservation, <laughs> someplace like that. Uh, if you're not willing to go, then you can't really say you're doing your part as a local follower of Christ when it comes to fulfilling the Great Commission. Sadly, I've seen churches, and uh, other, they're otherwise very nice churches, very nice Christians, but they go the direction of those poor translations, and it's kind of like throwing yourself for a loop or putting yourself on a guilt, guilt trip because you didn't go overseas. The point is, hey, both local and overseas Christian involvement can each do their own part in fulfilling the Great Commission. Overseas, inner city, they're both great, just not the only way to do it as you're going. As you're going to work, um, that's another way. Um, so now I probably scared anybody off who was formerly considering the Great Commission as part of their vision statement. Didn't mean to do that, but to get back to the task at hand here, Liturgically speaking, that Great Commission statement really comes at just the perfect time because in this week's Gospel lesson, Jesus is calling out Matthew from his tax booth. Why? Well, like the Great Commission says, so Jesus can make a disciple out of Matthew. It's the same Matthew now who wrote the Gospel. He rises up 
out of his tax booth, leaves all that lucrative business behind, and he obediently follows Jesus. There was a lot of money to be made as a tax collector as well. So in this week's gospel, Matthew receives his call to be a disciple, a Christ follower. And then in next week's gospel lesson, Matthew and the other disciples, along with Matthew, we'll see in chapter 10, they get their own special commissioning, sort of a trial run to go from town to town, to go from door to door, during and doing some pretty mind-blowing, supernatural things, as we'll see next week. All this, just as Jesus starts in earnest now, the art of disciple-making, with his ragtag, mishmash gang of Galileans. And I ask you, isn't it just like God, the good Lord, to put together, side by side, people who would never otherwise get together out in the real world, out in the wild? Some of these disciples would indeed be bitter enemies of each other, and downright hostile to one another. Yes, I believe the Lord does this on purpose too, so that we can grow. Through the struggle, we can grow even more. Matthew's a case in point here. I happened to finally watch an episode or two of this popular streaming production. I bet you some of you have seen it too. The Chosen, right? Anybody watch that? Yeah. The Chosen. Very popular and very well done. Um, It's a dramatization of the life of Christ and his 12 disciples. I saw the episode where Jesus calls Matthew to follow him, which parallels our gospel reading today. So now, in, in case you're like me, you're kind of late to this watch party of The Chosen. Uh, The series already finished its third season. I think it started on the Peacock Network, but you can watch it on Netflix and maybe other places as well, at least a couple seasons. So there you go. You can binge on Bible stories. Now, I bring this up because I liked a certain line in that episode of The Chosen in which Matthew is called by Jesus. But the line that I like so much, it's part of the extra-biblical dialogue that the writers add. So it's not from the scripture. So you're not sure if Jesus really said it. There's a certain amount of ad-libbing that takes place. There's a certain amount of um, adaptation, artistic license that goes into any dramatized gospel narrative that's adapted for television viewing. And why is that? Because as soon as you introduce a visual element now, you have to ask yourself all sorts of really unanswerable questions since your source material is only the written word. And the Bible comes with no pictures, unfortunately. Not even those courtroom sketched uh, artist drawings. So there are questions like, okay, was Jesus smiling when he said that verse? You know, it doesn't tell us. How much smiling overall did Jesus do anyway? You watch the different people play Jesus. And I remember Jesus of Nazareth where he just looked like he was a over-medicated Jesus the whole time. His eyes constantly, you know, looking out there. So how much did Jesus smile? We don't really know. Obviously, these characters, they say more to each other than just those words that are written down in the biblical record. As accurate as those ones are, so you, do you uh, only show the characters sing those lines that come straight from the scriptures and not a word beyond that? 
like some productions have decided to do it. Um, I think of the one Campus Crusade put out for Luke, exactly word for word. Or do you try to adopt the style of current TV shows today and task yourself with the need to now generate all sorts of extra-biblical chatter to move your chain of biblical events forward in a more natural way? The folks from The Chosen chose the latter, and they add some natural dialogue as they go along. That's what they decided. And so with mixed feelings about it, here's that extra-biblical line that I really liked so much from the scene where Matthew is called to follow Jesus, the calling of Matthew. To set this scene, it's pretty much like we have in verse 1 of our um, lesson today. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting behind his tax booth. From there, the TV show calls for a little tension building. It's TV, right? Because Peter, at this point, now there's only four disciples that have been called so far. Matthew will be the fifth. Two pairs of brothers, right? Andrew, Peter, James, and John, all the guys that smell fishy. So back to Peter's concern. Peter sees that look in Jesus' eyes. It's like, uh uh-oh, Jesus is about to do something. Jesus is looking at Matthew sitting behind his tax booth. Now, for Matthew, on his part, it's just another day, another dollar, or shekel, as the case may be, that he, the tax man, cheats uh, some hardworking countryman out of just so he can pad his own pockets. He might even be cheating uh, a relative of his or a neighbor. This was something that tax collectors were absolutely notorious for doing back then. Even today, right, we're not too fond of IRS agents. We don't want them snooping around. Um, I can't help but think of the Beatles, some of you who are on my age, the parody of their song. Um, There's one for you and 19 for me. I'm the tax man. Uh, That's the Beatles. Now, nobody likes the tax man. Tax collectors and sinners. They went together like rats and bats. Peter tries to warn Jesus that if he goes through with this and he calls Matthew, it will be a big mistake. This is Peter Peter talking, like he's got all this room to talk. Their little extra-biblical banter on this episode went like this. Peter, Master, you can't call him. Jesus, you didn't get it when I first called you, Peter. But Peter says, this is different. I'm not a tax collector. Jesus says, get used to different. I love it. Great line. Get used to different. Jesus turns the world on its head. Jesus turns everything around, and we think it's backwards. But it's because he's setting the world aright. And that's the love that I, the, excuse me, the line that I love. Um, Peter, get used to different. I think if Jesus didn't actually say that, he could have. And just a little later in the same chapter 9 of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is going to talk about new wine and old wineskins. He says that combination will literally explode in your face. Well, he didn't say it exactly like that. That's my addition. So Jesus knows he's bringing something new to the disciples, indeed to the world, and to the religious leaders especially who get a little uh, bothered under the collar about it. So back to the scene on this episode, Jesus the Master finally calls out Matthew, son of Alphaeus, follow me. And it's a great scene, especially because Matthew the tax collector sinner 
uh, that he is, he can't even believe the master's calling me. We've seen this kind of amazement at being accepted before by Jesus, being called upon. That's with a little chief tax collector. Who am I talking about? Zacchaeus, little guy, but he was a chief tax collector. Who knows? Maybe he knew Matthew and was over him. Now, uh, here's Jesus with Matthew, just a tax collector, not a chief tax collector. But he's playing the same strategy as he did with Zacchaeus. If it's not broken, don't fix it, right? Matthew, we're having a big celebratory dinner at your house tonight. And guess what? You're the host. You can afford it. Well, apparently back then, as, it, as in today as well, news of hosting a big celebratory dinner spreads fast. And before you knew it, here's verse 10. Many tax collectors and sinners came out and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Oh, boy. There goes the neighborhood, right? On this occasion, Jesus is testing his disciples. Who do you think had a more difficult time coming along and being accepted as one of the Galilean gang, one of the disciples? Uh, well, there's one who became one when they went more by the term apostles. So there's two candidates I'm talking about for this dubious honor of receiving the coldest reception from the other disciples or apostles. So would that person with that distinction be Matthew, the tax collector, traitor, as traitors were in the eyes of their own Jewish countrymen. That's what they considered uh, Matthew. Was it Matthew or was it Saul of Tarsus, a.k.a. Paul the apostle to the Gentiles, but who before his conversion, as you recall, he persecuted and executed Christians, followers of this Christ sect called the Way. So who got the colder reception from the other disciples? It's probably easier to say Paul or Saul. He had a harder time of it, but I'm not sure. Um, I wouldn't disagree with that necessarily. But we're going to spend the next 25 weeks, uh, really, with Matthew, that is, in the gospel he wrote. And that's simply because we have now, starting today, entered into this so-called long green season of the church here that I mentioned. Festival half, non-festival half, as we are in the season of Pentecost so long. And the next time we'll change any colors, we'll be donning the red, red for Reformation Day. So to help us get properly situated on Matthew's home turf then, I thought it good to probe even a little bit more into his history and the person of Matthew, son of Alphaeus. Maybe we'll see him rival Saul after all, forgetting that cold shoulder from the others. We'll also see that Matthew, the tax collector, sinner, makes a fine surrogate for you and me, actually. We are disciples ourselves with our own past, with our own moral failings, and the key, though, in all of it is this. We are shown the same undeserved mercy from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That's the key. Mercy. Lord, have mercy. Did you know scholars disagree on whether Matthew himself had a brother who was also one of the 12 disciples? Matthew himself says nothing about this, hence the argument against it. But very interesting, if you were to flip over to Mark's list of the disciples, you'll find Mark's record of Matthew's call, and then it adds some interesting 
details, one of which is the use of the other given name for Matthew. Does anybody know what that is? Levi. That's what Luke calls him. That's what Mark calls Matthew. They both call him Levi in their Gospels. And Mark 2.14 records this. As Jesus was walking along, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's desk. Jesus told him, follow me. So Levi got up and followed him. Now that sounds very similar to Matthew's own account, except for the name changes. Matthew becomes Levi, and then Matthew's lineage is recorded as the son of Alphaeus. you got to remember that one, all right? In chapter 9 of Matthew's Gospel, which is where we find ourselves today, as mentioned, there are only five disciples so far. And you keep reading into Matthew now, chapter 10, and there you'll find Matthew's full accounting of all 12 names of the disciples. Matthew records in Matthew 10, These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who's called Peter, his brother Andrew, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, the tax collector. And this is Matthew writing it. That's how he refers to himself. Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him. But did you catch that? James, the son of Alphaeus. Matthew names himself the tax collector, and the very next disciple is that James, the son of Alphaeus. So Matthew is the son of Alphaeus, and this disciple James is also the son of Alphaeus. You can see how you're building a case for these two to be brothers. There's already a pattern of brothers who comprise the 12 disciples, right? Peter and Andrew, James, John. So the argument goes, Matthew and James are yet one more pair of brothers on the list of disciples. Matthew shies away from using his other name, Levi, which is the name, you might recognize, of the priestly caste going all the way back to ancient Israel, going back to the time of the patriarchs. Now, who knows? In Matthew's family, there could have possibly been, at least at one time, high hopes for Matthew, that he would grow up to be a priest to whom the whole family and the neighborhood could look up you know, with that name Levi. The very opposite of being a highly esteemed temple priest would have been the unthinkable possibility that a Jewish father's son, a proud mother's boy, would cave into the dark side, meaning they'd go to work for the Roman oppressors, the foreign occupation, only for the sake of lining one's own pockets, creature comforts for the cavorting with the enemy a sellout, traitor. And one can go on and on concerning the loathing that the Jews had toward their own kind who turned on them only to exploit them now for coin. Tax collector was the first order of sinner. Then there was the rest of the rank and file sinners. Sinners were second only to their own countrymen, those traitors who happily took money from their neighbors and family and then gave it to the foreign power. Who can tell what kind of emotional and relational damage this could cause in someone whose conscience was not quite yet fully seared? When Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners, well, tax collectors knew Jesus was talking about them. They knew they were part of that group called sinners. Hello, 
My name is Levi, and I am a sinner. That's a brave admission to make that first step. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, Jesus says. Matthew was rich, yet he was poor. He was poor in spirit. These are the first words that Matthew himself recorded in his master's sublime Sermon on the Mount. It starts out like this, penned by Matthew. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew knew he was sick. He knew it, unlike the self-righteous Pharisees who couldn't even bring themselves to linger around tax collectors and sinners without thinking that they would make themselves defiled, soiled by them. But Jesus welcomed sinners, even when it tarnished his reputation. Drunkard, cried the scribes. Glutton, shouted the Pharisees. But no matter, Jesus had a new friend to attend to. His name was Matthew, which means gift of God, because that's how Jesus saw him, not as a tax collector, rejected sinner. So Jesus called Matthew. Matthew saw it. He looked right at me and called my name. So there's a little more added dialogue that I would supply in my script if I was doing that scene. But a sudden rush of hope and life took over from within Matthew, rising up from his belly, as Jesus describes it in John. And Matthew couldn't resist. This alone was that which would fill his empty heart. The young tax collector immediately rose up as if he were given new life and strength. And verse 9 in our lesson actually uses that wording. He rose up. Then he left everything and followed Jesus. It's like he rose up to new life from being dead, and now he's on the right path. Jesus was his friend. Jesus was a friend of sinners. No greater love has anyone than this, said Jesus, that he laid down his life for his friends. That's Jesus, that's what exactly Jesus will do for the joy set before him. That he will do and he will take his life back up again so he can tell the idolaters, the adulterers, the liars, the thieves who are invited to his table. So he can tell all those sinners that are invited to his table, all your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. And now, may that very peace of God that surpasses all understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.